Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Permit me a moment as we begin. I sent an email out to many of you this past week inviting you to be a part of a Bible journey this week, this month, and this year. To make a commitment to read your Bible through in 2019. If you did not receive that email, it means you're not on our church's email list. We'd love to have you on that list. Stop at the Welcome Center on the, at the end of the service and add your name. I especially want to encourage you in that journey through Scripture. A number of your pastoral staff members got together and created a list of resources, not just for reading the Bible through, but also for reading about the Bible and studying it and learning and growing in Jesus. That, too, is available at the Welcome Center. Let's make 2019 a year through Scripture and a year of growing in Jesus. It's been just over two years ago now. It happened in London. Rather surprising event. It was actually a conflagration, a great burning that took place. It had been preceded by some days, weeks, and even some months of building what was the skyline of 17th century London, built all in wood. But on that day, September 4, 2016, on the River Thames, it was set to fire. And it burned brightly into the night sky. It took some time to consume it all. It was a rather unusual and interesting celebration. Why would they have done that? Why would they have built that and then set it all on fire? It was part of a four-day celebration, culminating in the fire that included history and stories and carnival-like events and people who were selling their wares and selling food. It was a great celebration of all things of the great London fire of the 17th century. On September 2 of 1666, a fire began in a bakery on Pudding Street. They were not able to contain the fire, and the fire spread. Spread throughout the building and then spread to adjoining structures, and then began to truly spread rapidly until it had consumed large portions of London. Four days straight, the fire burned, until finally it was extinguished. And now, 350 years later, they were celebrating the Great Fire of London. I have to tell you, when I read that, a natural question came to mind for me. It's the question that I assume must be in your mind as well. The question was, why would you want to celebrate that? A fire consuming your city? People dying and mayhem on every hand, why would you want to celebrate the great fire? Even more than that, why make a four-day celebration out of it, build the skyline, and burn it all down? Why would you celebrate that? And then, 
I remembered we're coming to the supper table of the Lord. We come here to celebrate a fateful Friday in history. Make no mistake about it, it was a deeply dark day for most who experienced it who had a relationship with Jesus. In fact, so catastrophic, so calamitous was the day that by the end of the day, those who called Jesus friend felt like their world had ended. There was no path ahead. There was no light at the end of the tunnel. Everything had been destroyed. Messiah? What hope did they have? He was hanging on a cross. And yet if you walk around, if you're attentive you will see that cross many places. Somewhere today or tomorrow, you may see it hanging from a necklace around somebody's neck, a cross. When you walked into church this morning, if you paused outside and looked up at the apex of the church, you saw a cross. When you walked through the lobby, if you looked up at the wall, you saw a cross. When you walked in here and looked at the top of these different table settings, you see a cross. Why are we celebrating that? It was an instrument of death and torture. It's almost like having electric chairs in all of those places. We have to ask the question, not just why did they celebrate the Great London Fire, but why would you celebrate the cross? Why do we come to this table? So journey back with me 2,000 years to the ancient city of Jerusalem. It's Passover. The city is gorged with religious pilgrims. Every adult male capable of being there has come and has brought his family along with him. The truth is Jerusalem is a powder cake. Passover, that's the celebration of emancipation, of freedom. That's Independence Day. And yet, to celebrate Independence Day, and yet on every street corner to see the evidence of Rome and the Pax Romana and the power of Rome must have been disconcerting in the extreme. So the city is full and is tense, ready to explode. From the Antonia Fortress marched the Roman guards, the Roman soldiers, with an eye suspiciously cast upon every group that gathers. Any group that gathers that might appear to be fomenting rebellion or revolution will be met with the force of the crush of Rome's heavy boot. Make no mistake about it, Rome will not tolerate any uptick in messianic fever. It promises to be a very tense weekend, especially since there is word on the street of a would-be Messiah in their midst. Jesus of Nazareth is planning. He apparently, if you read between the lines of the text, has been at work planning. He has in mind a small, quiet space, isolated from the crowds, 
where he will be able to consult with his most near and dear followers, just he and his disciples. They're going to celebrate Passover in that space. Though they don't know it yet, Jesus also is planning to institute something new, something that history will come to know as the Lord's Supper. And so he's planning. We're going to read what happened out of Mark's Gospel, the 14th chapter, but before we read the words, maybe two background items that might help make more sense of what we read. First background item is this. In the ancient world of Jesus, men did not carry water jars. They were not the ones who did that. That was, in that world, a woman's task. And so were one to be walking down the street and to see a man carrying a water jar, that would be reason to stop, to notice, to pay attention. That's different. Bear that in mind. Secondly, though our text will not say it, it appears that Jesus has been working to arrange a place, a place where he and his disciples can meet. The meal is not yet ready. They need to go prepare that. But he has arranged for a place, but he's done it quietly. There can be nothing that happens to alert the Romans. There must be great care taken. And so Jesus will give instructions to his disciples to be cautious, but to prepare. So with that in mind, let's read Mark 14. Mark 14, beginning in verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house, he enters. The teacher asks, Where's my guest room where where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. Mark doesn't say it. But that paragraph oozes with, shh, just follow, just do, don't ask questions. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. 
when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. 2,000 years ago, a world away, on the other side of the globe, a different clime, a different time, a different culture. And yet 2,000 years later, here we are at the table of the Lord. Why do we do this? Why do we commemorate it? Well, the simple answer is that it is a divine reminder. The divine reminder. On more than one occasion that evening, Jesus says, in remembrance of me. It is a divine reminder. But my question upon hearing that is immediately, well, a reminder of what? What is it that we're to remember? What is it that we're in danger of forgetting? As I look at our passage for today, it strikes me that there are at least three realities we are to remember. First of all, it reminds us of our history. History. What Jesus did. What Jesus did. He gave himself. He gave himself fully for us. A writer named Karen Blixen, writing under the pen name Isaac Dennison, wrote a story entitled Babette's Feast. The story is set in a severe and austere fundamentalist sect community in one of the Scandinavian lands. This God-forsaken part of that particular land was rough, not only for its surroundings physically, but because this particular religious sect had no joy and wanted no joy. They believed that God had called them to be severe and stern, not to enjoy the pleasures and delights of this world. As such, their daily food consisted of boiled potatoes and a certain kind of fish that they mixed in with it that ended up in some kind of gruel that they had to pretty much push down. Severe. The leader of the sect had two beautiful daughters. Throughout the story, he ultimately dies and they grow a bit older. And then there appears on the scene a young Frenchwoman named Babette. They don't know it there, but she has come from Paris, from Paris nobility. She's had to leave, and she has ended up in this Scandinavian place with these severe religious fundamentalists. Can you help me? I need work. Will you pay me? And so they put her to work preparing food, preparing boiled potatoes and some kind of fish. Well, Babette lives with the dream of returning to Paris. Unbeknownst to her, there's a friend back in Paris who regularly enters Babette's name in the French lottery. And because of that, one day word comes to Babette saying, you have won the lottery, you have won 10,000 francs, you can come home, you are rich. But Babette decides, before I go, before I return to Paris, I want to, to prepare a meal, a grand meal, a meal in the style of French nobility. And so she goes 
to the sisters, the leaders now of the sect. I want to prepare a sumptuous meal. Oh, no, 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 no. We couldn't do that. That's wrong. Jesus said, take no thought for tomorrow, for your food, for your clothing. We can't do that kind of thing. Oh, but please, I will pay for it. I will prepare it. We can't do it. But please. And finally, the leaders decide, okay, to pacify her, to mollify her, you can prepare it, and we'll eat it. But then behind the scenes, they say, but we won't enjoy it. We will not enjoy it. And so Babette goes to work planning, planning a sumptuous meal. French nobility eats this way. And things begin to arrive at that small town. Crates and boxes and animals and wines. They begin to arrive, and she prepares this vast, sumptuous, delightful meal at which they finally all sit as she serves course after course, drink after drink, and as they begin severely to eat. But any observer would begin to notice their eyes as they eat and their elbows and would begin to see the smiles playing at the corners of their mouth. Oh, my goodness. That is so good. And they eat. And before long, somebody places an arm around the shoulder. Of an, after all, didn't Jesus say, love one another? Place the arm around the shoulder. Squeeze them. Oh, this is a delightful meal. By the end of the meal, they are laughing and singing and eating and praising God for the delights of good food and drink. And then one of the sisters goes to Babette and says to her, We are so sorry now that you're going back to Paris. And Babette said, I'm not going back to Paris. I have no money. I spent it all on the meal. That's Calvary. He spent it all on the cross. That's this table. That's our history. That's what he did for us. This is a divine reminder of what Jesus did. He gave himself. But our text suggests, secondly, that not only is this a reminder of our history, it's also a reminder of our identity. Not only a reminder of what he did, but a reminder of who we are. As you read through this passage, something emerges with utter clarity, and that is that these disciples make up a community, a community of sinners but sinners whom Jesus loves. You see it time and again. Jesus says, I want a place to eat the Passover with my disciples. That's community. When they all reclined at the table, that's community. When he broke the bread and gave it to all of them, that's community. When they took the cup and it says, and they all drank from it, that's community. But then jutting out from the middle of that community like a sore thumb is one verse that threatens to spoil the community. That verse where Jesus says, one of you 
will betray me. Immediately, fear and suspicion rifles around the room. Is it I? Am I the one? Surely not me, Lord. What you end up with is community, yes, but sinful community made up of broken people. It is to that community that Jesus serves the meal. It's a community much like this one. This is a community, no doubt, but a community made up of broken people, of sinners, to whom Jesus says, the meal is for you. That's our identity. Calls to mind the words of Lee Eklov, a pastor, teacher, and disciple maker, who writes this, A young friend called me to say she had admitted herself to a psychiatric hospital. While she was there, I visited her when I could. One of my visits was on Good Friday. I asked her if she'd like me to bring communion to her. She said she would and asked if some of the other hospitalized Christians could join us. On that spring afternoon, five or six of us gathered in her room and shared the sacred meal. I think it was the most meaningful communion service I ever shared. Half a dozen strangers, each scarred by heartache, sitting helpless in a locked ward. Yet Jesus was there because we were there as his beloved. He was not only among us, but he was there within us. Even as broken people, we were one with each other. We were strengthened by his presence. We were healed in a way. We were nourished, washed, and rejuvenated, all because we had communion. Who are we? A community of sinners, loved beyond measure by Jesus, who left us a meal to remind us of that. So it's a divine reminder of what? Of our history, what Jesus did, of our identity, who we are. But there's a third reality that comes from this text. Not just our history and our identity, but also our destiny. Not just what he did, not just who we are, but also where we're going. Because did you notice what he said in the next to last verse we read, verse 25? As he sat looking at his disciples with the chalice filled with the juice in his hand, he looked at them and made a promise, a vow, a guarantee to them. He said, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day. I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. At other places, he would say it in different ways. Maybe none better than the utter simplicity with which he said it in John 14 when he said to his disciples on that same night, I will come again. This table is a reminder of that, of our destiny, of where we're going. A reminder of the fact that there will come a day when the toils of this world are over and done. A day when we will, in the words of the poet, leave this mortal coil and we will see him face to face. That's what the table says. Anytime I'm in Washington, D.C., with just a few hours to spare, there's one place I love to visit. 
I love to walk the sacred silent acres known as Arlington National Cemetery. Every time I go to Arlington National Cemetery, there is a pull, almost a magnetic pull on my heart, pulling me up that hill, up to that place, overlooking the thousands and thousands of crosses in perfect lines, that place known as the Tomb of the Unknown Soldiers. I am drawn to its simple stateliness, its ritual grandeur, watching that silent sentinel marching ramrod straight, every movement precise, 21 steps, stop, turn and face east, 21 seconds, turn and face north, 21 seconds, and then 21 steps back, only to repeat the very same experience as though to the cadence of an internal drummer that we, we cannot hear. Goes on until relieved of his or her duty. Every half hour during the daylight hours in the summer, every hour, daylight hours in the winter, every two hours at nighttime, 365 days a year regardless of weather conditions. That silent sentinel marches. I read to you the words of Harry Hines of Troy, New York, describing a visit to that tomb. At Arlington National Cemetery, writes Hines, I saw the changing of the guard at the tomb of the unknown soldiers. I had watched that ceremony several times before, always moved by its solemnity and precision. This time, however, I witnessed something new. When the changing of the guard was completed, the commanding officer asked us to remain standing in silence. Sergeant Jennings had completed 27 months of this special duty and now wanted to pay his respect to the unknown soldiers. A guard escorted his family to a place of honor. The commanding officer handed Jennings four roses. He approached the great tomb of the unknown soldiers from the First World War, knelt, and placed a rose before it. Then he moved with solemn dignity to the tombs, honoring unknown soldiers from the Second World War and the wars in Vietnam and Korea, kneeling to place one red rose upon each. He returned to his commanding officer and stood before him. At attention, their eyes locked. And they shook hands. Then Sergeant Jennings carefully removed his white gloves and returned them. His work finished. He then saluted his officer, greeted his family, and left. With tears running down my face, I thought of standing before the Lord Jesus one day, taking off my gloves and handing them to him. Face to face. To hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. This table reminds us of that moment. 
It is a reminder of our destiny, where we're going. And so we come asking. It's a divine reminder, we say, yes, Jesus made that clear. But of what does it remind us? It reminds us of our history, of our identity, and of our destiny. It reminds us of what he did, of who we are, and of where we're going by his grace. When I read the story, when I saw the pictures of September 4, 2016, burning the, 20, the 17th century skyline of London, I thought, why would you celebrate a catastrophe like that? And then I read further only to discover that the great fire of London, once it passed, became a turning point in London's history, turning London toward a new day and new growth and new realities to the degree that to this day they celebrate it. And we stand at a table. We sit in the presence of Jesus celebrating the cross. Why would anybody celebrate that? Was not the crucifixion Satan at his lowest? Maybe, but the cross was God at his highest. And when we realize that, how could we not celebrate that moment that changed everything. So we're going to partake. But before we partake, we want to wash feet. For some, if you're new among us, it will be a strange custom. Just read John 13. That's why we do it. So we're going to dismiss you, and there are rooms in the outer building where you can wash feet, even in our choir room. Keep your eyes open. There may be a guest, somebody alone. Draw them into your circle. Then when we return, we ask you to serve yourselves at tables down here in the front, in the back, and in the balcony, taking both the bread and the juice with you. We will return. And by the way, if you want gluten-free, it's in the deacon's room as well. And then we will partake in the divine reminder that is the supper table of the Lord.